As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our Champions League round of 16 preview. The world's biggest domestic soccer competition is about to make its welcome return and we're here to run through the matchups, the movers and the shakers and perhaps the possible reasons that will stop Man City from winning it once again. <laughs> My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today we have a man who loves a European night under the lights or as he calls them an Arizona 85 degree lunchtime watching a European <laughs> night under the lights. Joe Lowry, hello. Ryan, you have no idea how accurate that is. Uh, it is getting warmer and warmer out here in Arizona. It was, I mistakenly wore pants and long sleeves and a little, you know, little crew neck yesterday, and I was regretting it every time I, I left my space. So it's getting toasty, and the afternoon Champions League is almost upon us. Sounds cute, by the way, the outfit. Um, are we saying it, it rose from what, what, the, the 60s or something? Oh, I miss what you said as I was laughing over you, Ryan. <laughs> Never mind, Joe. What time is a, what time is a like a nine p.m. European kickoff for you? So that's three Eastern. Yeah, it's so like one, 12 one p.m. Yeah. Oh, we love awesome. it. We love that. I mean, the post-lunch Champions League does hit pretty hard. I mean, watching Atleti put two past Manchester United at about one thirty, it doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Mm, yeah. Maybe some extra time for dessert for the second legs. I like it, Joe. I like it a lot. Uh, Well, I I wish you all the best with your Arizona lunchtimes, Joe. Joining us also here is a man who loves this competition stage so much, he goes by the name Graham Round of 16 Rutham. Isn't that right? Well, yeah, to to people who don't know me and to my friends, I'm Graham Gazprom. (laughs) (laughs) Of course you are. Yeah, yeah. Tow- towing the corporate line as always, Graham. Actually, we were talking about your car earlier before we came on recording. Uh, GR016R, that's your license plate, right? You, you, you're, you're really into the round of 16 um, moniker. Yeah, that's that's right. Absolutely. Personalized number plate uh, along those lines. That's correct. Did you yeah. also make him a double O agent there for a moment? Was that O sixteen? So not quite a double O, I guess. He's like he's on the bench in case they need somebody to sub in. If double O seven gets taken, yeah, then o. he gets to take over. Yeah, there we go. I think I did it right. G R O sixteen R. He's like Bond, but not as smooth. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> but always sick. 
Doesn't speak the Queen's English. Otherwise, he's smooth. Proudly so. (laughs) And rounding out at pack, you just heard him. He's your friend and mine. He's a man who is relishing the prospect of drawing his first penalty shootout diagram of this year's Champions League. Hello, Taylor. Rockwell. Hello. Always exciting. I always am tempted to do it before we even get to extra time, knowing that as soon as I draw it and take up the whole page, someone will score and we won't go to penalties. So it's always that balance because I am that OCD and my notebook has to be all in line. But yes, I am excited for for penalty shootouts. I'm excited for the round of 16. I'm excited to not speak the Queen's English. Indeed, aren't we all, Gavna? Um, so a quick <laughs> question about your notes, Taylor. Um, what was your note-taking like at college and at school? Were you the guy who had these pristine notes who like had to lend them to everybody who didn't make the class? Uh, in the classes that I paid attention to and cared about, yes. In the classes that I didn't, no. The opposite is true. Uh, I had very bad notes. But yes, for the classes that I was super into... Uh, maybe over the top. I went to like a very nerdy high school such that when I went to college, like the first class I had, a professor at, asked a question. And I like my hand shot up because that's what I was used to. And then I realized that no one in the class of like 40 people had a hand raised. And I felt slightly silly. So uh, continued to take the detailed notes. Didn't raise my hand quite as much. Excellent. Well, it's made you the man you are today, there Taylor. <laughs> and that man you are today is going to talk some Champions League. Uh, before Under- we get there, though, Taylor, um, do you have your dude wipes ready? Everybody got their dude wipes? <laughs> Everybody got them? I, saw, I saw that story. That is something else. Yeah. NYCFC's new shirt sleeve sponsor, Dude Wipes, uh, because toilet paper is not for men, I think is the slogan. I mean, you know, <laughs> th- this show for the longest time has been sponsored by Manscaped. So I will throw no stones in this glass house of ours. That's very true. I actually tw- I, I tweeted about Dude Wipes earlier, Taylor. Uh, they responded, your butt will thank you. Trust us. Yeah. All right. I had well, a conversation that's... with Dude Wipes today. <laughs> that's all I'm telling you. It's an eventful life you live, Ryan Bailey. It's an eventful life you live. It is. Life's rich tapestry today involved me having a conversation with a butt wipe company, Taylor. That's how uh, <laughs> enriched I am. I mean... Cross that off the bucket list, my friend. You are you are doing things. Of, of all the ways that the beginning of this show could have gone, I, <laughs> I never, never would have predicted this. Great work, everyone. I would have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we seg uh, very smoothly from butt wipes to PSG versus Real Madrid, one of the mm. first games we're going to be talking about here. Uh, the Champions League, as I mentioned, returns. Uh, it's returning next week, Tuesday and Wednesday, as we record, the 15th and 16th of February. Uh, it is back with a bang. One of the first, uh, There's two games on the 15th, PSG hosting Real Madrid and Sporting Lisbon against Man City. Uh, or, or I might as well run through the rest of the uh, fixtures while we're here. On the 16th, on the Wednesday, we've got RB Salzburg against Bayern, uh, Inter Milan against Liverpool. Pool. Uh, the following Tuesday, Chelsea against Lille, Villarreal against Juventus, and the Wednesday after that, Benfica against Ajax and Atletico Madrid against Man United. Those games on uh, the same evenings are simultaneous kickoffs. They're not staggered, so uh, lunch no no breakfast and lunchtime for you, Joe. I'm afraid you'll have to pick your poison or dual screen those games. Uh, the format is two leg playoffs, no away goals anymore. Um, if it's tied on aggregate after two legs, thirty minutes of extra time. Then Taylor starts drawing the penalty diagram can i can i jump in ryan for just a second i'd love you to. i've been i've been holding this in even just in this this little bit that we've gone so far um can we all agree that extra time should go away 100 right extra time is not a good part of soccer you never get good soccer almost never get good soccer in extra time it makes the games longer without actually making them more entertaining 
I would be so incredibly happy if soccer just changed, got rid of that extra 30 minutes, got rid of those two 15-minute halves, and just went straight to the shootout. And even, I'm not even asking them to change the shootout, which I think could happen as well and make things more entertaining. But that stretch, man, I am, I am not, I'm looking forward to this round and the rest of the Champions League slate. I'm not looking forward to those stretches of 30 minutes. Or, or we introduce some new variables for extra time, like they flood the pitch and then freeze it. Great. And that, that would, could be quite fun for And we call time, that the St. Paul in February. Exactly. I'm, I'm more in favor of multi-ball in uh, extra time. <laughs> I think that could be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I, I'm completely with you there, 100%, Joe. I would like to know the stats on how often the scoreline changes or the, uh, the winner or the loser changes in extra time. I would guess it's not very often. Like in AFCON, I was... I was when, when the extra time happened, I was thinking, nothing's going to change in this 30 minutes. Why are we doing this? So, yeah, with you. Taylor, any opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, I thought we, we settled on the rule that uh, at, at full time, if we're going into extra time, the two captains go to the official. The official asks them if they would rather be watching the movie Heat. And if they both answer yes, then that means they would rather be doing other things. We're going straight <laughs> to penalties. If both of them are enjoying the game, if they're not really in the mood for Heat, then they say, no, we want to play the two uh, the two minute periods and away they go. So it, it gives you a little bit of flexibility. And I think Heat should be the arbiter of these things. Emphasizing not the Heat, but Heat. Yeah. The heat index is something we should employ, I think, certainly in this um, circumstance. Be careful not to use it at the start of games, though, because if if the referee asked that at the start of games, we'd never see any soccer because everyone would no, rather we wouldn't. watch heat. I mean, the That's opening really 15 minutes of heat? Get out of here. Are you kidding yeah. me? Yeah. Come on. Exactly. I, I like the way how when before we started recording, we were like, we're going to have to rattle through a lot of these teams <laughs> quite quickly. And so far, we've talked about dude wipes and now we're on to heat. I run a tight ship, Graham. We've got 16 teams to talk about, eight fixtures. Thank you very much for the reminder for putting us back on track. Paris Saint-Germain against Real Madrid. Perhaps the biggest blockbuster of this round. It is the 10th meeting between these two sides in European competition. They last met in 2019-20 at the group stage. PSG won the last fixture between them, 3-0 at home, and it was a 2-2 in Madrid. Uh, Madrid knocked PSG out at this stage in 2018, lest we forget. Uh, I've got an exclusive here, guys, from ABC Deportes on Twitter. Uh, They wrote in PSG's dressing room, they're convinced they will win against Real Madrid. When the Champions League draw put them versus Real, we will blow them up was the most heard phrase. (laughs) Six days before that game, the feeling is the same. So the headline there is team confident they will win game. Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, Yeah. we will blow them up sounds a bit extreme, but yeah, I mean, otherwise... Yeah, if you'd like further detail on PSG, I'm here for you as well. They've got a 13-point lead in League R at the moment. They're the only one uh, league defeat this season. Uh, they beat Lille, who are also in this competition, uh, 5-1 at the weekend. They're hosting Rennes this weekend before uh, they go into Champions League. In the group stage, you remember they were drawn with Man City and RB Leipzig. Uh, they beat Man City 2-0 at home, but they lost to Man City away. They suffered away draws at Leipzig and Club Rouge as well. So not the best of group stage for Paris Saint-Germain. They are the fifth favourite to win this thing, according to the bookies. They're behind Man City, Bayern, Liverpool and Chelsea in that respect. Um, they, they, As I say, they did beat Real Madrid last time they met, but they do have a concerning injury list. Under Herrera, Mauro Cardi, Sergio Ramos, uh, currently not fit to face his former team, Gigi Ronaldo, and a fella called Neymar 
Uh, apparently Neymar and Ramos are fighting to get back fit for this one. We shall see. Uh, I think we're all reasonably familiar with PSG and what they do under Maurizio Pochettino, but they tend to play a 4-3-3. Uh, I'm thinking we'll see Mbappe, Di Maria and Messi in the front line here. Um, Danilo and Verratti probably in the middle with Paredes. I'm thinking if he's fit, he's a, a question as well, apparently. Uh, Marquinhos and Kimbempe, centre-backs. Uh, Hakimi and Nuno Mendes as fullbacks, and you know PSG doing PSG things. Messi, Taylor Rockwell, only two goals in thirteen league starts this season. Will be interesting if he turns it up against Real Madrid. I mean, he he has previous uh, of doing just that against he Real does. Madrid. Ryan, one question for you about PSG before I get to talking Real Madrid. Uh, what is the status with Pochettino, as far as you understand? Because there were the reports at the end of the window that they had told him he would be done at the end of the season i don't know how accurate those were but i wonder how like how harmonious that squad is given that the locker room is convinced they will win i'm wondering is the manager convinced they will win and is he convinced he will be there come the summer um it's a very good question taylor i would put it i'll ask you a question in return does psg strike you as an organization which has harmony in it in any respect and has it in the last few years. Doesn't seem like a happy kind of place. There's a lot of noise and interference. There's a lot of reports. There's even more reports coming out this morning as we record about Potcher being linked with Man United. No assumption that he actually wants to go to Man United, by the way, because ha- he's been fairly tight-lipped on that. But uh, yeah. it's, <laughs> it's a good question. I th- the, the, the way the media are portraying it, it's like he's going to get out of Dodge this summer. And maybe uh, an early P- um, Champions League exit will will hurry that along. But... The, the honest answer is I have no idea because they run so yeah. much interference in that place. I need to do some heavy reading on what Leonardo is doing because he seems to be the common negative that makes things uh, contentious at, at BSG. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, but that is what I see reported over and over again. So interesting little wrinkle for PSG. Interesting situation for Real Madrid, their opponent. I think the next month or so is going to tell us a lot about where this team stands, where they stand right now in the league, top of the table, six points ahead of Sevilla in second, uh, 13 ahead of Batiste and uh, 15 ahead of Barcelona. So they've got a pretty good gap over their historical rivals and then a six-point gap over their closest opposition in the league. But there's a slight downturn uh, to Madrid's season so far. Following their win over Atletico Madrid uh, in December, they were overperforming massively uh, by, I think, about 0.6 expected goals per game. So they are exceeding the goals that they should be scoring, basically. That dropped to about half of that. It's 0.26 after their 1-0 win over Granada. They needed extra time to get past Elche and the Copa del Rey. They drew with them at home in the following game. They lost to Bilbao in the Copa del Rey. So there's been some concern about the lack of production, the downturn in scoring, and maybe are they returning to their normal form? And will that normal form be enough to get them through? A big explanation for why there's been that downturn would be that Benzema and Vinny Jr. aren't uh, performing as well as they had been. Benzema, especially uh, picking up an injury prior to the international break, has not been playing, is a big question mark as to whether or not he will be ready to go against PSG. My assumption is that he will be, uh, but they did this sort of same thing last season. Uh, They lost in the Copa del Rey to a third-tier team. They were knocked out by Atletico Bilbao in the Spanish Supercopa. They dropped 10 points, or they were 10 points behind Atleti. They end up chasing them until the very end of the season. They make it to the Champions League semifinals, losing to Chelsea. So they have previous of having this kind of this blip in form figuring it out and then finding a way to keep winning and grinding and if they do that this season i would expect them to finish top of la liga 
In terms of the Champions League, I'm not as sure how this goes because we would expect them to be in there 4-3-3. If Benzema can play, it'll be Benzema flanked by Vinicius Jr. and Rodrigo. Edar Militao and David Alaba uh, will likely be your center backs, although Ferland Mendy has been out with injury. Another one that is kind of going to be a game-time decision expected to be back, but if not, it's an issue because Marcelo would be the deputy there, has sort of shown he cannot hang in high-profile matches and the idea of him trying to track uh, Neymar or Mbappe or Di Maria or whomever else might be in there uh, is maybe not the most exciting one for Madrid fans. So the hope would be that Ferland Mendy will be back because otherwise it means David Alaba is probably moving to left back. Nacho comes in at center back, but that is what they did against Athletic Bilbao, and they lost that game. So I think how they're able to navigate those injuries if those injuries are there will be at one point as to how this game goes. The other one would just be what PSG do to frustrate Madrid. Because if you're playing a kind of open, expansive game, that suits Madrid pretty well. But once teams sit in, they tend to struggle a little bit more. And when teams press, as Bilbao did, they sort of had an intermittent press in various parts of the field. It caused a lot of problems for Real Madrid again. So if you can limit their ability to possess the ball and keep it moving, they have the most passes per defensive action of any team in the league this season. But once you start to challenge that, their form just takes a little bit of a wobble. So I think it could be a really impressive and meaningful result for Real Madrid, but it could also be a sign of a squad that needed some refreshing but didn't get it in January and now is at a little bit of an impasse for the rest of the season. Yeah, I wouldn't want to call this one, but what I think we can be reasonably comfortable, uh, confident in, Taylor, is we're not going to see a stalemate in either of these, I'd imagine. <laughs> no. Um, seven goals between them in the last two meetings. So there's going to be some some uh, s- some penetration of the rear line. I've almost said that terribly, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> and and still kind of did. Uh, but yes, I, I, think, I, I think short of... Of one team bunkering, I think we're going to get an expansive game. I would expect a lot of fouls and and, and, uh, yellow cards when there's the professional fouling happening. I do really hope, even though he likely won't be, I wish Sergio Ramos were in there because who knows what kind of chaos that would create. But my guess would be that this would be an expansive, pretty open game, but that PSG will have... Uh, probably more of a pressing game plan to frustrate Madrid. And I think the first leg might be a more interesting, combative, tense game than the second leg. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. This one being in Paris as well, you'd assume they might um, be a little more confident doing that kind of thing, Taylor. Um, unless there's any more for any more. Should we move on to the next game? Uh, that same evening, we've got Sporting Lisbon against Manchester City. Joe, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I skipped over. You're our resident predictions expert. Would you like to give a, a score and a goal scorer and minutes for goals for that last one? Oh, Ryan, I forgot about this lovely dance we get to do together. Um, I do think I do think this is going to be a track meet. I just said it. I, I think it's going to be end-to-end. It's a little bit different because it's two-legged, and so it's, it's harder to predict some of these things. I think PSG are going to win this tie. I'll put it that way, Ryan. I'm not going to give a specific score for this game this week, but PSG, I think, have too much attacking talent. Both teams are imbalanced between their attack and defense. The PSG's attack, quality-wise, is is just better, despite how how good Benzema and Vinicius have been. So PSG are going to win this one, in my view. I, I predict there will be a penetration in the rear line, is my uh, <laughs> prediction, as Ryan Bailey succinctly put it. 
<sighs> I also think if we're going with historical narratives, I agree with Joe. This has all the makings of PSG wins this game, and it's this statement win. They got past Madrid. They found a way to get the win. They're going to go, all the- and then they lose the, ne- the next uh, knockout round game. That feels like the way things tend to go for them. So, yes, I-, I wouldn't be surprised if PSG find a way past Madrid in this fixture. Wonderful stuff. Uh, Sporting Lisbon against Man City on the same evening here. So, as I say, you're going to have to pick your poison between those two games or dual screen if that's your thing. Uh, A little bit about Sporting Club de Portugal in Lisbon. This is is only their second time in the knockout stages, the first time in 13 years as well. They had three wins and three losses in the group stage. They finished second behind Ajax in their group. Most notably, uh, they beat Borussia Dortmund 3-1 at home, uh, a game that effectively sent the Germans to the Europa League. They are the reigning Portuguese champions, but they're currently second in the Portuguese top flight, six points behind Porto. Um, Guess who they're playing on Friday night? Porto! The Portuguese Classico coming up as a nice warm-up for this Champions League tie as well. So a couple of difficult fixtures for sporting on the docket. Uh, They're coached by 37-year-old Ruben uh, Amorim, who is a former Portugal national team midfielder. He also, Taylor, has been linked to the Man United job. One of many. Life's rich tapestry once again. Uh, He joined sporting as manager in March 2020. Wonderful time to pick up a job. Um, Said he, uh, he's, he's said to have brought the team back its identity. Tactically, his identity loves a 3-4-3, does this guy. Um, his sides press, they're capable of parking the bus when they need to, sit in a low block when they need to, and they're pretty quick on the break. Now, to me, Taylor, that sounds like the kind of team Man City doesn't like to play, someone who can sit back and uh, counter and surprise them. So, you know you know how, was it Leon? Was it the French team, Leon, who kept beating them in Europe? Yeah. I think... Yeah, so maybe it's, it's I'm, I'm getting those vibes, a similar setup here or a potential setup from um, Sporting Lisbon uh, here. Um, in terms of players, they've got Paulinho as their number nine up front, who's got 11 goals from 17 games this season. Uh, Nuno Mendes, a fullback aforementioned, left to join PSG. Uh, they've got another Nuno, Nuno Santos, who plays wide left in that 3-4-3. He will probably feature here because uh, the notable absence in this game, the likely absence, I should say, of uh, one of their biggest goal threats Pedro uh, Goncalves, their left midfielder, who is likely to miss the aforementioned Porto game this weekend. He might not be fit for this one either. So he'll be a big loss for sporting Lisbon Taylor Rockwell. Yeah, and I I would love to share your optimism about sporting making this a competition. (laughs) I have a feeling Man City will do Man City things in this game because that's what they have been doing of late. Uh, They have not lost a game since, I believe, mid-December, and that was a way to RB Leipzig when they already had the group locked up and, say, Zach Steffen started in goal. Uh, Since that loss, they've played 11, they've won 10, they've scored 33, they've conceded 7. So they're scoring goals, they're doing just fine. Where they do tend to get uh, tripped up is against specifically Southampton, but clubs that do what Southampton did pretty successfully. Southampton earning two draws against Man City this season, and their effective game plan was to put two forwards up top to cut off passes into Rodri. They had high uh, pressure, high energy from their midfield to also limit those passes and to limit probing balls into the midfield. So you're kind of trying to force City out wide. And then essentially having a high line, an aggressive line to make Manchester City uh, 
as uncomfortable as you can make them. And with Pep still tinkering every game, there's always that possibility that he'll maybe gamble a little bit too much or take it too far. This doesn't feel like that game, in my opinion. That tends to be a thing where I think he overthinks a problem player, like, say, a Kylian Mbappe, and trying to figure out what do I do to limit this one player. Sometimes that can take him down a negative rabbit hole. I don't see that happening here. I see Man City continuing to do what they've been doing, and a big thing they've been doing is just dominating. Uh, John Muller for The Athletic had a great graphic about who controls what territory, possession by zone in the Premier League this season. Man City far and away dominating possession more than any other club. Liverpool coming close, but the major difference there being that Man City also dominate possession in zone 14, like that area at the top of the box where that where the D would be. And Man City against Sporting, I, I envision them having a lot of the ball and being pretty comfortable in where they're possessing it and how they're moving it. I think even if it is a defensive effort from sporting, I think Man City eventually find their way through at least once, maybe a couple times. And I do think Man City make it out of this one unscathed. Uh, yeah, likely so. It, f- it does feel like sporting will be playing the role of the away team, despite being the home team in this one. Yeah. So that said, <laughs> yeah. and- Man City, uh, their record in Portugal, they've won just one of their six matches in European competition uh, that were hosted in Portugal, including last year's Champions League final. Ooh. There we go. How much how much stock do you all put into past results either against a club or or again or like in a country like that, Ryan? Like do, do you think there is something to be said for yeah. like you can get a little bit nervous about set opponents or does it not really that matter yeah. that much? Particularly when it's the same set of players going back to a particular place, I think I, I put a lot of stock in patterns of scores and patterns of um head-to-heads. I think it's really important, particularly as someone who likes to lose a lot of money betting on Man United to win the Premier League. Um <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the, you know it's it's the kind of data that you go on and, and quite a lot of the time it shows um pos- uh, patterns that help you i'd say I, I i agree with with same sets of players but when i see a a, a fact that goes back to like the 90s and 80s yeah. or something and, and yeah. i'm yeah. like yeah that that doesn't have any bearing whatsoever <laughs> no, it's a completely different group of players but yeah same group of players it does indeed you need some recent data and it is useful i would say um i think we're probably all agreed that man city will be okay in this one joe i'm not going to make you predict how many goals they do score in this one um uh, joe anything more to say about this one before we move on City will win. Yes. Yay! Graham, City will win? By 10. <laughs> 10. Wow. A, te- a 10, like an 11-1, a 12-2, or a 10-0? 10-0, uh, yeah. Why not? Let's go for the, the full binner. <laughs> Put it out there. Sporting, like sporting fans must be loving this episode. <laughs> it's their fault for drawing City, to be honest. I actually, yeah, I actually like sporting. I always rate them in Football Manager for all their young players, including Pedro Gonçalves. So the highest compliment. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that guy who probably so. won't be there in this game to make the difference, Graham. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm disappointed about that. Yeah. As am I. As am I. It might make it a bit less competitive. Uh, we've got a lot to get through. And Taylor and I have been talking for a long time. So we're going to go to a quick break. When we come back into Milan against Liverpool, Graham and Joe, you're going to have the floor. Back soon. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We're talking Champions League on Wednesday. The headline will likely be Inter Milan against Liverpool. That won't be the headline because that's never the headline, the two teams who are playing. Regardless, Graham Ruslan, tell us a bit about Inter Milan. Yeah, so in terms of this this match itself, I'm really excited yeah. about this one. I think PSG, Real Madrid, obviously that is a heavyweight clash. But in terms of the actual matchup, that I think this one could be the most exciting. Um, looking at Inter, which is obviously my job in in this, um, obviously Inter are a team we've all watched quite a bit over the last wee while. They are the Italian champions. They're currently at the top of Serie A, although it's a it's a close run thing. That's the best title race in Europe at the moment. They are a good team, obviously, and it was uh, Antonio Conte who put in a lot of the groundwork that still still sustains them now. But as much as Conte was a success at Inter, this is a team that is still to make its mark on the Champions League. What I mean by that is this this group of players, obviously Inter won the Champions League back in 2010, but this is a very talented group of players who have achieved a lot, but not in European competition. They went out in the group stages of the last two seasons of the Champions League, so by that measure, Inzaghi has already surpassed his predecessor, and this is clearly a difficult last 16 matchup for them, but this is going to be tricky for Liverpool too. Inter are a high quality side. And I think if Inter are to gain an advantage over Liverpool in this tie, it could be in the centre of the pitch. Um, whenever there is scrutiny of Liverpool, it tends to be of their midfield. They've had injuries in there. Even when everyone is fit, you know, it's does Thiago play? And if he's playing, who plays alongside him? Is it Curtis Jones? I think Fabinho is pretty much a lock at the base of the midfield. But those other two positions in that three for Liverpool, sorry to tread on your toe, toes here, Joe, but I'm swinging it back to Inter, I promise. They are a bit fluid and undecided in the centre of the pitch. And that is in contrast to Inter, who have a very strong midfield unit two of whom have played together for a while, Brozovic and Barella. Then they've added uh, Chalanoglu from AC Milan in the summer, and he has been key to Inzaghi changing it up from, from Conte. There are still elements of Conte ball in there, but Inzaghi is imposing his own style of play, and Chalanoglu is key to that. They like to play, they still like to play in fast transitions, which is very much Conte ball. They find width in the wing backs. They play midfield three and a front two, usually uh, Zeko and Lautaro. But Chalanoglu gives them something different. It allows Inter to be a little bit more creative, impose themselves on opponents if they do have control of that midfield unit. Expect Chalanoglu to be the one trying to make something happen for Inter in that final third. He's probably been their best player this season. He's got eight assists in the league. He's got six goals. He's averaging 2.7 key passes per 90 minutes. He's excellent at set pieces. He's a good long-range shooter. He's just a very tidy footballer. So um, I think he could be key to this match if Inter are going to get a result. And the other thing I would say in terms of what's changed since we last saw Inter in the Champions League at the start of December is their January additions. So they might not have caught the eye with their signings like Juventus did. Obviously, they went and got uh, Vlavic and Zakaria. But I still think Inter are stronger now than they were before January. So most notable was the addition of Robin Gosens. He's obviously one of the best wing-backs around. And while Inter already have Perisic in that position on the left side, I think Gosens is a better defender. He is currently injured. He has missed a lot of the season through injury. But the last report I could find said that he could be ready in a couple weeks. 
um, and that was from last week. So maybe, maybe he makes this game. Maybe it's possible he's back in time to face Liverpool. And I think it wouldn't be surprising to see him play if he is fit because he is more of a defender than Perisic. And obviously Liverpool have Trent Alexander-Arnold to uh, they have to protect against him. So I, I, I think he's a good addition. I think Felipe Caicedo as well, who Inzaghi knows from Lazio, his time at Lazio. Um, he's not going to be a first-team figure, but he allows a bit more rotation and attack and that helps keep Lataro fresh as well. So I think in general, Inter are just a good team who have managed to evolve from last season after the managerial change. There's still a lot of elements of Conte there, but Inzaghi is bringing them something a little bit different and something that might give Liverpool more trouble, I think. Inter are a really good team, Graham, and I love a lot of the info you just brought. This is not going to be an easy game for Liverpool. This is going to be, I think, one of the best games of this round of 16. For Liverpool's side of things, they won Group B to get into the round of 16. They were one of the three teams, and all three are teams that I got to preview for today's show. I drew the lucky straw. They're one of three teams that went a perfect 6-for-6 in the group stage to get all 18 points. They're second in the Premier League right now behind Manchester City, but man, they are excellent. Right, It's not a surprise under Jurgen Klopp at this point, but they are statistically excellent. They are tactically excellent. They're one of the top three teams in Europe right now in expected goal difference per 90 minutes. I believe the other two are City and Bayern Munich. So they are a really, really strong team, and they're in elite company. Graham, as far as areas of this game that could be extremely influential or maybe have an outsized impact on the result of this two-legged tie, I'm completely with you that the midfield battle is an interesting one. And I, I'm I'm with you in that I think Inter might have the edge there slightly. It has been a rotating cast at times for Liverpool. I would be shocked if we didn't see Jordan Henderson, if we didn't see Fabinho. But that third player, that second number eight, I think is going to be an interesting one. I don't know exactly who's going to start there. So you mentioned the middle of the field. I want to take our focus out to the right side of this game. And Trent Alexander-Arnold, you mentioned his name, Graham, but I want to talk about him a little bit more he is having himself a year, ladies and gentlemen. He is one of the best creators in the world. He's on pace for 18 assists in the Premier League, which would be five more than his best season to date. I mean, he is he's fourth in the entire Big Five leagues in expected assists. Fourth. Fourth. He's not a fullback. He's not a right back. He's a creator for this Liverpool team, and things flow through him on that right side. They flow through... Mohamed Salah higher up the field, and it seems like he will be back and fully ready to go for this game, along with Mane. Salah, as of a couple days ago, was already back in training. Mane wasn't quite back yet, but I would be very surprised if they weren't back and fully ready to go by next week. That right side for Liverpool is a monster. And you, you flip it around and you look at Inter with Ivan Perisic, and it does feel like he'll start, Graham. I would be surprised if Robin Gosens was thrown into that lineup by Inzaghi, even though if they were both fully fit, I think he's absolutely the player you start. He's a brilliant left wing back and has more of the defensive chops. I'm totally with you on all that. But man, can Perisic deal with all of those things? That's a limited way to look at this game because defending is a lot more complicated than just 1v1s. But I, I don't know if I'm... Inzaghi, if I fully back Perisic to do that. So how can Liverpool make Inter uncomfortable on that side? That's absolutely one of the things I'm going to be paying attention to in this game. How impactful is Trent Alexander-Arnold? How impactful is Salah? Do we see Luis Diaz factor in in some way, signed him from uh, from Porto for a hefty chunk of change? He's already gotten some minutes and a Colombian national team player. Really good uh, left-sided attacking player and is going to have an impact on this team. But this Liverpool team is deep. They are well-drilled. We know exactly what we get from them at this point. And I, I, don't, I genuinely don't know if Inter will be able to contain them, but I am very excited to find out. It sounds a little to me, gents, like this game might be won or lost on the flanks from what you're saying there. Like, Graham, if Gosens 
uh, gets the start and you've got him on one side and Dumfries on the other. That sounds pretty good for, for Inter, does it not? And and obviously Liverpool with their fullbacks and whatnot. It feels like there's going to be a lot, a lot going on on these flanks. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's where both of these teams generally, I know I mentioned uh, Chalinoglu, but he he is obviously a new addition for this season. This team, the Inter team, going back to Conte's day, is built for the for the wing backs to create the the forward thrust. Obviously, last season they had Hakimi on the right side. Now they have Dumfries, who's maybe not as good, but Dumfries has been improving over the course of the season. Um, he had a good Milan derby for most of most of that game, and and so there is space and behind the with, with the Liverpool fullbacks. We've obviously obviously spoken about Alexander Arnold's weaknesses as a defender obviously Joe has mentioned everything that he does in the attacking third and he's probably the best in the world at that at the moment but there is space in behind him and equally Andy Robertson you know I think he's maybe slightly better defensively than than Alexander-Arnold but he he leaves a lot of space to be exploited as well so I think you're absolutely right that that could be where a lot of damage is done by both teams yeah, um, Liverpool already won at the San Siro this season, uh, 2-1 against Milan uh, on the last day of the group stage, which sent the Rossoneri to the shops in Group A, Joe. Uh, prediction time, what are we going to say? Liverpool win? You know, Ryan, I'm feeling, I'm feeling good this year so far about my predictions. I, I feel good about PSG, I feel good about City. I am backing Liverpool in this one, but I, I think it's going to be a lot more challenging than maybe a, a number of folks out there might think. Indeed. A fascinating matchup there. And also a fascinating matchup taking place at the same time. We've got RB Salzburg, Brendan Aronson's RB Salzburg, taking on That's Bayern right. Munich as well on Wednesday. That's right, Joseph. Uh, Graham, tell us a bit about the Austrians. Uh, they did meet in last season's competition. Bayern won both those games convincingly. Are they going to just do that again? I think they might. I think they might. But that doesn't mean that Red Bull Salzburg are, are not a good team. Um, I very much pulled the, the hipster straw here with, with Salzburg. They're, they're very interesting in terms of they've got a lot of good young players. They play good, exciting football. So they are an attractive team to watch. But unfortunately, I do think they're going to come up against a Bayern Munich team who just kind of do everything they do a little bit better, or actually a big bit better, I think. Um, but in terms of what has changed with Salzburg since they played in the Champions League. Um, Not a great deal, because they haven't played a league match since December 11th, when the Austrian Bundesliga takes its winter break. And that break doesn't end until tomorrow evening. So that is quite a large period of time to, to take off. That should mean they're pretty fresh for this game. Of course, the downside of that is they haven't had a lot of match practice recently. They have played a few a few friendlies over that time. I'd imagine the idea of that is to stay um, match-sharp, with the the sole purpose of being ready for this game. They won an Austrian Cup match against Lask at the weekend there. That was their first competitive game back after that break. So, um, yeah, they they could be coming into this match against Bayern fairly cold. Um, For anyone who's forgotten what has already happened in this season's Champions League, Salzburg qualified for the last 16 uh, with a very impressive 1-0 win over Sevilla on the final match day of the group stage. They finished second in the group that very much looked like a Europa League group, with Lille going through as the group winners, Sevilla surprisingly crashing out. They didn't finish in the top two. And in the Austrian Bundesliga, Salzburg are the dominant force. They are 14 points clear at the top, having lost just one game in 18. So this is a team that that is used to winning. You could say that they are the, the kind of the Austrian Bayern Munich, I guess. Um, and I think they are, as I say, a very interesting team to watch. They've, they've often used a, a 4-3-1-2 system. Um, the back four has mainly consisted of Christensen, 
Onguini, Vobler and Ulmer with Cohn in goals. Midfield uh, of Kamara as a single pivot with Siavald to the left, Sucic to the right and a certain Mr. Brendan Brendan Aronson in the number 10 role. And he is very important to this Salzburg team. A lot flows through him. He brings a lot of creativity. And then you have a front two of Okafor and Adeyemi, who is a very highly rated um, German striker. I think Bayern Munich might be seeing a lot more of Adeyemi after this match. If the transfer, transfer speculation is to be believed, it's pretty much an open secret that if Erling Haaland leaves Dortmund this summer, which we all know is a strong possibility with that release clause, Dortmund are going to take some of that money, they're going to go back to the well at Salzburg and they're going to lift out Adeyemi. Um, And he has impressed in the Austrian Bundesliga, in the Champions League as well. And when you watch him, what stands out that he gets is that he gets into some excellent attacking positions inside the box. Um, obviously, he's maybe not at the level Haaland was when he was at Salzburg, but he has ability. He can play in both wings. He can play up front. He's very quick. He's got good acceleration. He's good on the ball. He's good in build-up play, which he needs to be in this in this uh, Salzburg team. He's, he's a good dribbler, and he can finish as well. And a lot of what Salzburg do is about trying to get that front two, including Adeyemi, in behind the defence. Bayern do like to play with a high line, um, so maybe there's some scope there for him to cause some trouble, but I would be surprised if the outcome of this tie is anything but a pretty convincing Bayern Munich win. Graham, if you're if you're Leeds United watching this game, are you rooting for Brendan Aronson to do really well or not well? Because really well <laughs> is like good for you, but it also means maybe a few more people are are throwing in some bids. Really poorly means fewer people throwing in bids, but also maybe it justifies the move a little bit less. How do, I think we're all very concerned about how Leeds United is approaching this. But yeah, w- w- what do you think? If you're Leeds, do you want him doing good or bad? This that's a difficult question, and I think it's one it's one that Scottish clubs always end up with. You know, a player <laughs> if they sign a player and they do really well, it's like, oh, yeah. this player is really good. Oh, no. oh, maybe maybe don't do so well because all of a sudden the <laughs> Premier League club is coming in with twenty million and they're gone after six months. Um, so yeah, I can see the dilemma there. Um, I think Leeds United are going to go back for Aronson no matter what happens, even if he even if Salzburg go and win this thing and he is the player of the tournament. I think Leeds United have done their homework enough at this stage; they're going back with an offer in the summer. But um, you're right. A, f- a couple good performances in in these in this tie against a caliber, a high caliber side like Bayern, and and his stock will rise a little bit, and that price might get pushed up a little bit as well. Uh, Joe, apart from a win, what else can we expect from Bayern? I mentioned that I had the three teams who went six for six in the group stage. Bayern Munich is one of those three. Liverpool, Bayern Munich, and we'll get to the third one in just a little bit. They finished on top of Group E, plus 19 goal difference. Plus 19, which was the best in the group stage. They're top of the Bundesliga. We know that right now. They're sailing towards their 10th straight title, which doesn't even feel strange at this point with Bayern Munich. That's how dominant they've been. There hasn't been a ton tactically that's changed from Hansi Flick last year to Yuli Nagelsmann this year on a macro level. But Nagelsmann has has somehow turned this team into an even more dangerous side. They're creating more chances and scoring more goals this year than last year on a game-by-game basis. They're a little more possession-dominant, slightly fewer crosses. But, I mean, dominant is the perfect way to describe this team. They're a dominant team in the Bundesliga and in Europe, and they're a favorite to win this whole darn thing. They have the best expected goal difference in Europe's top five leagues right now. They create more chances than than any team in the top five leagues, more than City, more than PSG. 
and they press more than almost any team in the top five leagues. I think I think it's Frankfurt that might be just ahead of them. I, I can't remember at this point, but they they get out and they run. They'll use a ton of the ball. They'll use a number of different shapes. The wrinkle right now that I think Nagelsmann is still trying to come to grips with is how this team plays without Alfonso Davies. He has been their star left back, driving forward, providing width on that right side. Without Davies, who's dealing with myocarditis right now after a, a positive COVID-19 spell, Nagelsmann's tried a couple different things. He's tried Marcel Sabitzer in that left-back spot, and he's tried shifting to a back three, which is something we all saw over the weekend, right, against RB Leipzig. A back three with Kingsley Coman and Serge Gnabry as the two wingbacks, quote-unquote. Backs is a bit generous in that particular instance. But they'll go really vertical in specific moments with Gnabry, with Coman, with Sané. They'll go longer with some of those passes, but they'll also build through midfield and use Kimmich and use Tolisso. I mean, this team, everything about this team is really, really good. If I'm going to try and find a chink in their armor, and this is a real stretch. They haven't been quite as good defensively as Man City or a handful of other teams in Europe, but they are still one of the best teams in the entire world at denying chances. With with the solid uh, presence that they have in the back, and again, it's a little different without Davies, but man, this team is phenomenal. They should win this tie. Salzburg, for their part, to, to add one bit on what Graham mentioned, Salzburg recorded more uh, pressing actions, more defensive actions in the attacking third than any team in the group stage. Uh, any team in the round, yeah, in the group stage, excuse me. Wow, I'm getting this this backwards now. They they pressed a ton in the in the opening stage of this competition. They probably should not do that again against Bayern Munich. If they step forward, there's obviously a high reward for that, but it's an extremely high risk against a team like Bayern Munich. So I'm curious to see how that battle takes place. Salzburg want to press, but do they draw their line of confrontation closer to midfield, try to block it in a little bit in compact space in their own half, or do they go for it? I hope they go for it from a neutral's perspective, but I think this one might be more on Bayern to break through Salzburg's defensive structure. Yeah, the, the TLDR on this one probably Bayern gonna win, Joe. That'd yeah, right. I would I would be very surprised if they didn't. It would be maybe not the upset the upset of the group stage, but it it also might be the upset of the of the knockout round. Excuse me, I did it again, guys. I gotta I gotta get it together here. Come on, Joe, get it together. Slap yourself. We're gonna take a quick break in which you can slap yourself a few times. When we come back, we'll co- uh, we'll look at the other four games which are taking place on the following week, the twenty second and the twenty third. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's have a little conversation about Chelsea 
against Lille. Chelsea, Taylor Rockwell, the reigning champions of Europe, don't you know? By the time they play this game, they might be the reigning champions of the world. They're facing Palmeiras, of course, in the Club World Cup at the weekend. Uh, by the way, they've got the League Cup final later in February as well. So Edward Mendy uh, might have three trophies this month, including AFCON. Quite a, quite a month for him. Um, but they will be coming back from Abu Dhabi uh, for this game. So lots of travel to come back for Stamford Bridge. That is a consideration for Chelsea here. Uh, they finished second in Group H behind Juve. Uh, they lost at Juventus Stadium in the group stage. And on the last match day, I don't know if you remember, guys, they had that bizarre 3-3 draw against Zenit. Uh, all the more bizarre because Timo Werner scored twice. How bizarre is that? Um, there, are, there have been some questions asked of Thomas Tuchel's side this season, but they are in reasonably decent form as we speak. Uh, they've beaten two Giants, Al-Halal and Plymouth, in their last two games. Um, we see Thomas Tuchel switching his system a little bit. He um, he likes a back three occasionally, he likes a back four occasionally. Uh, he's got plenty of great midfield options we're all pretty familiar with. Uh, Asper Laqueta and uh, Marcus Alonso is good wide options. Uh, he's got three number nine options, Taylor, Lukaku, Werner, and the natural number nine, Christian Pulisic. All options up top, of course. Um, and in terms of absences, looking like Reese James and Ben Chilwell likely unavailable for this one. The X factor I'm putting here is the travel. It's a four-hour time difference and a decent flight from Abu Dhabi back to London. So if there is going to be any um, chinks in Chelsea's armour, I think it might be a little bit of tiredness, a little bit of fatigue from these players. But they are playing a little side who were beaten reasonably convincingly uh, 5-1 by PSG yeah, they were. at the weekend, Taylor. Yeah, they were. I want to talk about Lille. I want to ask you this question, Ryan. It might sound like a joke. I mean it sincerely. Is playing in the Club World Cup prior to playing this game good or bad for Chelsea? And I don't mean even from the travel standpoint, just that like I don't get the impression that the Club World Cup is the most fun tournament to, to participate in. And obviously you get there by winning the Champions League. If you're Chelsea, having just finished that, coming back to the Premier League, but then also this uh, competition... Like I know they're professionals. I know they're competitive. I just wonder if there's an element of like, oh, we got to do this again to get back to the Club World Cup. Like, I don't know if I need this in my life. And even if they're not feeling motivated, though, I think they'll be just fine against Lille. I started that off as a question and I answered it myself. Uh, last season, Lille, very impressive. Champions, 38 games, 24 wins, 11 draws, 3 losses, 64 goals for, 23 against. I know that's a lot of numbers. It's important to remember some of those because that was under manager Christophe Gauthier. He leaves. In comes Jocelyn Govenic. And it's been something of a different season. Uh, so far, through 23 games, they have eight wins, eight draws, seven losses. So almost as many draws as the entirety of last season. And more than double the amount of losses they had last year. 31 goals for and 35 against. They have already conceded 13 more goals than they did last season. Part of that, I do think, is due to some of the losses they had in the summer. They lose uh, Mike Mignon to Milan. They lose Bubakari Sumare to Leicester, amongst a few other ones. And... With those absences, there's still depth in the squad. There's still plenty of people coming through that could make them better. And there was a period of time when they looked very good. And then there was a period of time when they did not. Unfortunately for Lille, it is not the order you want those things to be. In December, six games, five wins, one draw, 13 goals, four. Feels like they found the momentum. Feels like they figured some things out. They start to have some nuance to their game. They're not just setting up at a 4-4-2, or even if they are, there's a lot of mid-game adjustments, and it seems like maybe Govanek has figured some stuff out. 
But then come January and February, five games, one win, one draw, three losses, seven goals, four, 11 against, including, as Ryan uh, mentioned, that 5-1 loss at home to PSG in their most recent game. Not helped by the fact that they sold uh, winger Jonathan Ikone in January for $15 million thereabouts. Also, uh, I think they brought in Adon Zegrova from FC Basel as a basically like-for-like right-wing replacement. They bring in Hatem, Hatem Badarfa on a free. He started that PSG game. And that start tells me that they're still trying to figure some things out. They've had injuries to Burak Yomaz, who usually starts up top alongside Jonathan David. In his absence, it's been Hatem Ben Arfa, but Ben Arfa has also been looked upon as potentially playing in midfield. Ronaldo Sanchez has been in and out of the team, usually starts. I would expect him to start against Chelsea, but it's basically just been a really erratic season for Lille, more bad than good, currently 11th in the table. It doesn't feel like they're going to be the stiffest of opposition against Chelsea. Maybe this is the game in which they they sort of get things going because it's such a major opponent. Uh, and if they do, I would assume Tim Weah will be a big part of that. He is getting lots of minutes uh, either as a start starter or as a substitute. Recently, it's been as a starter uh, with the international break aside. So I think regardless, we'll see Tim Weah in this fixture, but I do not see Lille getting past Chelsea. It sounds, Taylor, as if uh, Lille are weaker than last year and weaker than the group stage as well. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to put it. Yes. Oh boy. Okay. So, um, <laughs> all right. We can. We uh, thank you very much for that. But one. Tim Weir, Tim Weir versus Pulisic. <laughs> there Tim we Weir go. That's what it's going to be all about. There is some interest there, so you can choose listener to watch that one, or you can choose to watch Villarreal versus Juve, which is on the same evening, February twenty second. Um, little note on Villarreal, who we know finished a second in Group F behind Manchester United. They were beaten twice by Man United in the group stage, the ultimate indignity. Uh, but a big away wins over Atlanta on the final day. At- Atlanta, Atalanta on the final day to qualify and uh, to send uh, the Italians to the Europa League uh, with that result. Um, they, in form-wise, bit of a rough patch they had in January, a few losses, uh, but coming into, uh, as we record, they beat Mallorca and Real Betis in recent weeks. Uh, Villarreal's warm-up for this Champions League fixture. Well, actually, I should say for this weekend, they're playing uh, Real Madrid at El Madrigal. Um, their stadium, El Madrigal, of course, named after the family from Disney's Encanto movie. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> very famously. Very famously. Uh, they are, for uh, Villarreal, um, a, a quite a small team in terms of um, the Spanish uh, 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 setup. They, 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 they punch above their weight. Their stadium, El Madrigal, only holds around 24,000. That's the same, roughly, as Vicarage Road Watford Stadium. So they are a small but successful club. They're in, they're in the Valencia area of Spain. So the Valencia, they're big rivals, and they, they do punch above their weight, I should say. They are coached by Unai Emery, currently, who is the master of the Europa League, not necessarily the master of the Champions League. Uh, you may remember, Taylor, who um, uh, Unai Emery beat in the, champ- uh, the uh, Europa League final last year. Nope, I had it permanently removed from my brain. I think he's also linked with the Man United job. Ryan, you're just previewing uh, teams <laughs> that will have their managers linked with Manchester United at yes, some point. I like that's it. all of them. That's all of them. Well, if you if you do get Emery uh, at Manchester United, he likes a 4-4-2, so you can look forward to that, Taylor. Um, he's got two pretty good strikers in this Villarreal side, Ger- uh, Gerard Moreno and uh, Paco Alcacer, of course. Another strike option Villarreal have, Alberto Moreno. Yes, Liverpool left back Alberto Moreno has played. He plays wide midfield, uh, wide midfield, excuse me, for Villarreal. But he has been playing up top as a striker for them as well. Fun times, Taylor. They are up against Juventus, a tricky one for them. Yeah, I would say so. And it's been a tricky time for Juve since last we saw them in the Champions League. They've been 
busy and good, but not necessarily impressive. Six wins, three draws, one loss. That loss was on penalties in the cup. Clean sheets in three of the last four. But as we talked about when we talked about their nil-nil draw with Milan, struggling to score in some games that matter. Stats Bomb shows they're 12th in Serie A in terms of open play XG, 14th in terms of expected goals per shot. So needed to shake things up, and they have done just that. This January window, they get rid of uh, Rodrigo Bentancourt, sold to Spurs. They loan Dejan Kulishevsky to the to the same club. Uh, Aaron Ramsey loaned to Rangers, much to the chagrin of James Sands, it turns out. And Dusan Vlaovic uh, from Fiorentina brought in for just under $90 million. Dennis Zakaria from Dortmund in for about $9 million, both of them scoring in their debut in a 2-0 win over Verona. Vlaovic with a really, really, really pretty finish. Great movement off the ball. Zakarina more advanced, like right center midfield uh, role. Striding forward, gets a great goal himself. Alvaro Morata looking rejuvenated with uh, some more striking options in there. I don't really know what their shape is going to be because we've only seen one game with, with sort of some of those stars in there. In that game, it was theoretically a 4-3-3, but Dybala had a lot of freedom to move. So a lot of times it looked more like a 4-3-1-2. And that's a thing that I would expect uh, from this game. One thing I wanted to note, because I was really interested in how they were able to finance Vlaovic or what's going on financially for Juve. A quick uh, excerpt from James Horncastle's piece for The Athletic. At a shareholders meeting uh, assembly in September, Juventus announced a loss of 210 million euros. Simultaneously, they organized a 400 million euro capital increase to address the impact of the pandemic on their bottom line and to support a five-year development plan. Cool. Exor, Juve's majority shareholder, advanced the club's 75 million euros to facilitate these plans before Christmas. Uh, Chief Executive Mauricio uh, Arriva Bene insisted, quote, the capital increase is to give the club stability at an accounting level after two crisis hit years caused by the pandemic. <laughs> it's not for the transfer market or for a coup de theater, uh, sudden or unexpected event in a play. Uh, I will reiterate, we will do something in the transfer window, but costs must be contained and it will depend on what the balance sheet allows us to do. So they got an influx of 75 million euros. Would anyone like to guess how much Dusan Vlahovic costs? <laughs> Did hmm. you say 90? <laughs> 90 million dollars, 75 million euros. Oh, yeah, nice. Yeah. nice. So they spent all that money immediately on one player. But I think there is some logic to this because uh, when they were considering that move in the first place, they were outside of the Champions League spots uh, and far more likely to qualify nowadays. I think they probably would have figured it out anyway. But I think Vlovich gives them a lot of goals, probably sells some jerseys, gets them into the Champions League. And that was the big thing they were concerned about was losing that money. That would have been unthinkable for them. So I think this is sort of spending money to hopefully make money down the road. And that starts with this game. It will be a tricky one. And I don't quite know who's going to fit where. I don't know if Weston McKinney plays, for example, had played a lot uh, before the break. Didn't play in that win over Verona, but that might be because he's returning after the international break because there's other players there. But Zakaria looking very, very good and playing in a spot that McKinney would very likely also play. Maybe it means that uh, Zakaria moves to the left and Rabio doesn't start. He did start in that game. Uh, but either way, I would assume we'll get some McKinney at some point in, in one or both of these games. And I think Juve will have enough to get by Villarreal. Um, Taylor, is it more important for Juve to win this game or for the Ednelli family to sell a bunch of Jeeps? Because it sounds like it's uh, they're both pressing right now. 
They're both pretty pressing, uh, but I think it's probably most important for Juve to win this. I think because it it shows Allegri is improving the team, is getting the best out of them, is sort of returning them to the form that was expected. If he doesn't, it feels like it's going to be more turbulence for Juve, and that's not a thing they necessarily need right now. Indeed. Vlavic and his incredibly chiseled jaw in action in Spain in this one. Uh, let's move to Portugal for the hipster's choice, Graham Ruthven. Benfica against Ajax. Uh, two-time European champions, Benfica, against four-time champions, Ajax. Neither of these teams are going to win the Champions League, though, Graham. Uh, well, I think Joe's team might... Uh, Thank you, Graham. Thank you. Outside, there, there is a lot of buzz picks. around Ajax, I'll give you that. I'm going to buzz more yet. in like three minutes, just give me a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, Joe, I'll, let, I'll give you a chance to buzz, but first I'm going to... <laughs> Hum? Uh, I don't know what a kind of slight. Not, it's not a buzz oh. around Benfica, certainly. Um, they're they're an okay team, but I think they might be last sixteen fodder, especially against Ajax. The biggest thing to note in terms of what has changed since the last time they played in the Champions League is that Benfica have a new manager, Jorge Jesus, the Benfica legend, that glorious head of hair. He's gone. He was sacked just after Christmas following a poor run of results and he's been replaced by uh, Nelson Verissimo. Verissimo is he's only the caretaker manager, but this is the second time he has performed this role for Benfica. He was also caretaker, caretaker after Bruno Lage, who's now obviously at Wolves. He left that club and Verissimo stepped in there, there. So that change definitely adds an element of the unknown to this match. Um, there is a chance the team that Ajax will face now will be different to the one that made it through the group stage, and if we're to look at how they played in the group stage under Jesus, they had been playing in a 3-4-2-1. That has changed with the change in manager. So now Benfica seem to be using, and it is a small sample size, because as I say, Jesus was only fired in that space between Christmas and New Year, so not had a huge amount of matches, but they have been using a 4-4-2. And from what I can tell, the logic here is twofold. To tuck in the wingbacks, because that was creating a lot of space for opponents to, to exploit in the channels, and also to get support up to Darwin Nunes, who I'm going to speak a little bit um, about in, in, in about 30 seconds, I would say. Whether it's uh, Yaramchuk or Ramos, Benfica, they want to get players around Nunes, and so it'll be interesting to see if Verissimo sticks with that shape against Ajax, who are a team who obviously can flood the middle of the pitch and dominate the game. Having two up front might leave them a, a little bit lightweight in the centre, so maybe he draws someone back for an extra body in, in midfield, I don't know, or they could go all out, play two up front, uh, look to get the ball to Nunes, and lose 4-0 in this game, uh, which would seem an out, an, a likely outcome to me. Darwin Nunes, I have to mention him in depth. Um, they, Benfica might not have the individual quality, or frankly the quality as a team unit of Ajax, but they do have Nunes, and I think it's fair to see he's one of the most in-demand strikers in the European game. In the past few weeks, he has been linked with Newcastle, Everton, West Ham, Arsenal, and there were reports over the weekend there that United had scouts watching him, because of course they did, it's not transfer speculation until United have been mentioned, so that has been given the stamp of verification there. He has got 16 goals and 17 league appearances this season, three goals in the Champions League as well, so those are obviously very impressive numbers. Um, looking at how he plays, he's very athletic. He's got good acceleration, good speed. He takes very long strides when I was when I was watching him. Um, in fact, he reminds me a little bit of Ellen Haaland and how he does that. And of course, the numbers that I've just mentioned, they hint at how good a finisher he is. And I think even at 22, he has all the physical attributes to be successful in pretty much any league. I think he, it seems 
probable he'll be on the move this summer. He'll be there'll be a, a big offer probably from the, a Premier League club, and I think you'll be able to plug him in and play in the Premier League. I think he he's he would be a good fit for that league. But before then, he's got his sights set on Ajax, and while I do think Ajax are the favourite for this tie, Nunes could do some damage in this match. Um, Joe, there were reports that you were caught sitting in a tree with Ix Kissing. You do love them quite a lot. Can you tell us about them? <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't deny. Um, it, it's been Ix right now are a phenomenal team, and I'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, it's been a chaotic week for Ix as a club with Mark Overmars uh, leaving his position as Ix's director of football affairs. News broke that he had been sending inappropriate messages to several female colleagues over a quote extended period of time. It's awful, unacceptable. Um, he has no place being a part of that club. So it's been a really weird week for Ajax in that way. And in my heart goes out to all the people that were negatively affected there. Looking at Ajax on the field, they are unreal, right? I mean, I'm back with my Ajax propaganda in terms of how they actually play. They won Group C. They are the third team in the group stage that went a perfect 6-for-6. Six six. They are top of the Eredivisie right now with a 5-point lead on PSV. They have, gentlemen, a plus 59 goal difference. 59. That's a 28 goal difference, a, a, a positive what? 28 goal difference between Ajax with what? their plus 59 and Feyenoord, who have the second best goal difference in the Eredivisie, what? with 31. They have a 28 goal difference lead. That is insane. For reference, City has a plus 12 goal difference lead over anyone in the Premier League. The only team in Europe that is even, even remotely close to being as dominant as Ajax is in their respective league is Bayern Munich, who have a plus 27 goal difference lead in the Bundesliga. Ajax, again, are insane. Recently, they brought in Brian Brabby uh, back on loan from RB Leipzig after he'd moved to Leipzig from Ajax over the summer. So they get a player they're familiar with, but he's not an every-game starter for them at the 9. Sebastian Hilaire is an every-game starter at the 9. The leading scorer in the Champions League so far, I might add. This is one of the best attacking teams, not just in the Netherlands, but in Europe. They had 20 goals in the group stage that put them second uh, after those six games, only behind Bayern. I mentioned Hilaire. You have Anthony on the right, this really clever left-footed winger that we all, I think, really enjoy watching. Dusan Tadic on the left, who's also left-footed. He'll drive down to the end line and put some uh, cutbacks into the box for Hilaire and for Anthony crashing on the weak side. They're so fluid on the ball. Nominally, typically they play out of a 4-2-3-1. But tons of rotation, asymmetrical possession play, moving a lot of numbers forward. They'll they'll likely dominate the ball against Benfica. But really, guys, what they love to do is get out in transition. They want to run right at you. They want to move in behind and they want to break into the box. No team passed the ball into the box as much as Ajax did in the group stage. They, They really try to move the ball into those spaces and they're darn good at it too. Lots of crosses, lots of cutbacks from the half spaces and they'll press to create some of those transition moments. So they can be vulnerable at times defensively and I, I'm interested to see can Ajax break Benfica down and if not, how do Benfica try to expose Ajax's defensive weaknesses? And there are some. They're a good team overall. They don't have a ton of major weaknesses but they can leave too much space on the wings after they push numbers forward. They've only given up five goals in league play so they haven't exactly been punished for it a whole lot. But uh, I can see that happening at times should they continue to move forward in this competition. But man, I, I love this Ajax team. I love the makeup of the group from Edson Alvarez to uh, Timber in the back to the, the fullbacks and Daily Blind on that left side doing some interesting things. This is an incredibly fun team and I'm, I'm probably unreasonably excited for this tie. It sounds like I was unreasonably down on them not going too far in this competition, Joe, because, um, you know, it's not that long ago they did go quite deep in this competition with a different set of players, albeit. But um, do, you, do you feel like they've got a deep run in them? 
I, I think they can. I mean, at this point, this is the challenge of knockout soccer. Anything can happen. Like, legitimately anything can happen. Ajax could get bounced. They could really struggle to break down Benfica, and they could be out right now. But in terms of the resume, in terms of what I've seen on film, and in terms of the numbers, this Ajax team is one of the favorites to win this whole thing right now. Marvellous stuff. One more game for us to preview, gentlemen. Um, you, you, on, on the Wednesday evening, on the February 23rd, you can watch that uh, hipster special, Benfica versus Ajax, or you can watch uh, two teams who are a bit rubbish right now, Atletico Madrid <laughs> versus Manchester United. Graham, we've saved Woo! the best till last. Uh, have we? I'm not sure that we have. Um, yeah, Atletico Madrid, Manchester United, both teams are in difficult moments right now. Um, I think this is probably the most difficult moment that Simeone has ever had as Atletico Madrid manager. There have been times in the past when things have been trending in the wrong direction and he has managed to turn it around. Let's not forget that Atleti are still the reigning Spanish champions. They won La Liga last season. So maybe we shouldn't be too hasty to write them off entirely. But as someone who watches a lot of, of Atleti, something just feels a little bit different this time. If you, if you look at their league form, they are in bad shape. They've lost five of their last eight games, including four in a row before Christmas. That had never happened to Simeone as a Atletico Madrid manager before. That was the worst run of results in the league he'd, he'd ever had. Um, we've spoken before on the pod about how Simeone... He has been very open about wanting to modernise Atleti, make them more expansive in terms of their style of play, take them away from that underdog spirit that has served them so well for so long. But it feels like he's tied himself in knots with this. And now Atletico Madrid, they're a team without an identity, which is something we've never really been able to say before with Simeone in charge. And when you think of Atletico Madrid under Simeone, you think of solid defensive foundations. You think of quick transition attacks. You think of mental strength strength, and, of course, poophousery, uh, of course, is something that you associate with Atleti. Looking at them now... I don't see any of those things. They have one of the worst defensive records in La Liga this season, conceding more than a goal a game. They have a soft centre. Look at how Ferran Torres, not exactly a giant, he was able to win a header inside the six-yard box for Barcelona at the weekend there as Atleti shipped four goals in that game. Um, and Atleti at their best, they always defended that six-yard box better than anyone else in Europe. They were That was one of their strengths. They are now slow and pretty ponderous in the attacking uh, third. The intensity of their counter-attacking is gone and they are mentally weak as a team. They have struggled to hold on to leads this season. They've conceded a lot of late goals and they've been vulnerable at home. They've been beaten a number of times at the Wanda Metropolitano, which had been a little bit of a fortress for them last season. So none of those things suggest that Atleti should go far in the Champions League, but of course they are playing Manchester United, uh, who I'm sure Taylor will go into in depth after me. I will mention there is still some hope for Atleti in this Champions League um, tie, not just because they are facing Manchester United. They still have some good players. I think Griezmann would be one of those players. However, he is currently out with a thigh injury. While he hasn't been a resounding success since returning to Atleti, he hasn't done bad, but you wouldn't say he's, he's... back to his best as he was before he went to Barcelona but without him that Atleti attack is going to be very very slow and I think Manchester United and Maguire in particular seem to struggle with players who run in behind and run at them 
And that's what Griezmann will try to do if he's fit for this game. Suarez used to do this, but he no longer has the the pace or the stamina, certainly to do that for 90 minutes. And that's not really Yao Felix's game either. He prefers the ball into feet. He'll play in between the lines of the, the midfield and the attack. So I think if Griezmann is in this team, if he's fit, that makes that's a, that's a big boost for Atleti. I also think another issue for Atleti might be at right back, where they have they also have injury concerns. So they signed Daniel Vass to be the replacement for Kieran Trippier, who obviously went to Newcastle in January. But Vass, uh, he suffered an injury on his debut. He could be out, which means that Marcus Lorente will play there. Marcus Lorente is a brilliant player, but. It's bad news for Atleti if he plays it right back. He can play there, but he's so much more effective in the, in an attacking midfield position. People remember that game against Liverpool a couple seasons ago where he just um, demolished them, quite frankly. And he is that good in attacking midfield. Simeone keeps playing him at right wing back or at right back because he can play there. He's half the player when he plays in that position. So I think if, if Atleti can get Marcus Llorente in an attacking midfield position and they can get Griezmann on the pitch... That could change the dynamic of this tie. They could be much more um, adventurous and creative in that final third. If not, then this could be a bit of a slog fest, I think. I heard adventurous and creative, and we're still talking about this same game? Uh, maybe not. It was a hypothetical <laughs> uh, situation. <laughs> uh, Joe, do you want to talk about Man United? Or Taylor, who wants to talk about those guys? I'll, I'll start. I'll yeah, I'll start, it. and then I'll flip okay. it to you, Taylor. I, I have right. a one thing on Atleti first. I'm a lot higher on them than you are, Graham. I'm not saying this is a perfect team, and I'm I'm all aboard your your discussion of them being ponderous with the ball. They're not an elite attacking team, and they I don't they haven't been a whole lot under Diego Simeone in the past. But defensively, they are getting incredibly unlucky right now. They are incredibly unlucky right now. They're shipping 1.32 goals per 90 minutes, like actual goals, the things that really do matter. But looking at what they should be conceding, that's it's only 0.18. Sorry, I, I butchered that number. 0.8, excuse me, expected goals per 90. So they're allowing 0.52 more goals per game than the numbers say they should. At some point, if 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 the expected goals have taught us anything, at some point that should revert to more of a sustainable figure and the goals they're conceding should start dropping. I think there's a good chance that starts to happen in the Champions League against Manchester United. I could be completely wrong about that and they could continue to leak goals like they did against Barcelona. But I mean, how many of those goals do you back Barca to score over and over again, right, over the weekend? It's those kinds of things that are borne out in some of the underlying numbers. For Manchester United, this is uh, a Manchester United team right now that is not in the best of form. They lost to Middlesbrough in the FA Cup, then drew with Burnley in the league earlier this week. Not exactly inspiring recent results. Hey, powerhouse Burnley. Thank you very powerhouse much. Powerhouse Burnley and, uh, and Chris Wilder's you know, rejuvenated Middlesbrough. Uh, of course, but, there we but go. The, but the thing is... I, I do think things have improved somewhat under Ralph Rangnick. Culturally around the club, maybe that's not happening yet. There's still a lot of high-profile news coming out of this. I mean, there's a lot going on at Manchester United, as there always is. But they've shored up some things defensively. They're starting to exhibit some control on the left side of the field. We're seeing Diego Dallo play at right back and provide some real progressive passes from that position, especially over someone like Aaron Wan-Bissaka. There's things to like about this team 
there's also a lot of concerns about this team. You look at their the overall defensive record this season, they're giving up slightly more expected goals per 90 minutes than Everton on the whole this year. The Everton, guys. It's, it's not a good place for Manchester United to be in right now. But again, to reiterate, Rangnick has imposed his style a little bit and has shored some of those things up defensively. So this team is slightly better than those numbers indicate. They'll, they'll play out of a 4-2-3-1 most often, even with some of this recent discussion about Rangnick shifting to that 4-3-3. And that did happen, right? But a lot of times with Bruno, it still naturally shifts to that staggered shape where you have two deeper midfielders and Bruno up really high in terms of in terms of his average positioning. So there's holes in midfield. We know that we talked about that dozens of times before. There's also strong points of this team as well right now. So I, I don't know how this tie is going to go down. Both of these teams are not in the form of their respective clubs lives. But Taylor, I'm curious to get your perspective on this. Do you think Manchester United has a chance here? Because I, I certainly do. I think they do. I mean, for all the reasons we've talked about, that Atleti aren't particularly impressive either. I would. I think I am, as speaking as a fan, I'm pretty nervous about this one because I think ultimately Atleti can sit deeper in a, in a knockout competition. I think they can sit in and frustrate and make themselves really difficult to break down and then maybe shore up some of that expected goals against that you talked about, Joe, uh, and then hit on the break. And I think Manchester United have proven themselves consistently to be capable of giving the ball away, being kind of slow in possession, and getting caught as a result and kind of conceding goals when they don't need to. So I could totally see a scenario in which Man United are even able to get a goal and feeling kind of confident, and then Atleti peg them back, and it kind of ends in a standstill, ends in a slugfest. I, I'm I'm not feeling as confident as I would like to be because I think, at the very least, Diego Simeone knows like his players well enough to know who can do what in this type of knockout round game. I'm not sure Ralph Rangnick knows the same about his squad at this point. Graham, would you agree with that sort of summary? Where are you on this one? I am leading towards Manchester United to win this tie. Hey, um, okay, okay. I I honestly think Atleti are worse than uh, a lot of people realise at the moment. I, I get what you're saying, Joe, with expected goals, and that does tend to kind of uh, correct itself over the course of this over the season. But the thing is, Atleti, they've been making individual errors all season long. We're now in February, and I do wonder if it just comes down to the players that they, that they have. So that back line that they have of Savage, Jimenez, Hermoso, you look at the old Atleti teams, they always had a strong defensive leaders. Who's the defensive leader of those three? Maybe Jimenez, but Jimenez feels like a little bit of a liability. He is very vocal in what he does, but he makes a lot of mistake, mistakes. He's not uh, Diego Godin. And I know Manchester United also have a very weak defence, but they have someone like Raphael Varane. And I think that just in itself will make a difference for Manchester United. So I, I think Man United have more players who just can produce something individually than Atleti have. They do have those players, you know, Lamar, Carrasco, I guess Felix can come up with something, Griezmann if he plays. But I just think Man United have a little bit more individual quality than Atleti at the moment, and that might make the difference. But I am expecting a match full of a lot of mistakes, I think. Wonderful stuff. Some compelling reasons to tune into Atletico Madrid versus Manchester United. Um, that pretty much concludes our look towards the Champions League round of 16, gents. Well done. You can put your dude wipes down. We are, we are done. Congratulations. <laughs> By the way... Um, <laughs> <laughs> the Dude Wipes Twitter, their profile picture appears to be an NFT of a cartoon character of a man start. whose face is a butt. Wow, that's a lot to take in. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that sense. <laughs> I sort of feel like this is all Ryan's been doing this whole show. Well, we've all been talking, Ryan has been 
quietly looking up yeah. more things. Oh, not just this Ryan, show. are you the Dude Wipes admin? Yeah, this is what I'm wondering now. <laughs> I've got an announcement to make. Check my LinkedIn. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's all I've got to say. Uh, anyway, gents, thank you very much for this Champions League uh, preview. Taylor Rockwell, you are a legend. Uh, as are you, my friend. Thank you so much. Graham Rusband, thank you very much for your services. Thank you, Ryan Billick. Arizona Joe, you star. Oh, right back at you. And listener, thank you very much. We'll be back on the feed shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.